I think that most people that have gotten that call can kind of remember it like it was yesterday. When people are pregnant and have a very low chance of having a baby with Down syndrome, maybe like a 1 in 280 or 1 in 500, they're offered genetic counseling. And when people are getting this call about their newborn baby, um, they can sometimes go days and days with getting a, your baby might have this condition to when they actually meet with a geneticist or a metabolic doctor. I didn't know about any support groups for the first two months of his life, and we felt so alone. Genetics isn't always black and white, and the emotions and decisions surrounding genetic testing can be even more complex. Welcome to Patient Stories with Gray Genetics. I'm Eleanor Griffith, a certified genetic counselor and the founder of Gray Genetics, a telehealth genetic counseling and consulting service. It seems like there are constantly headlines in the news about genetics, but few news stories focus on the patient experience. At Gray Genetics, we are collecting patient stories, your stories. Every other Tuesday, we share an interview with a patient or a genetic counselor. It's hard to tell your family, like, we can't come, we can't be there. And, um, you know, I think it's hard for people to also understand, like, they really can't come. I remember Marianne would have the little food kitchen out and Isaac would grab a hot dog and Marianne would be like, oh no, that's too many proteins and she'd take it from him. Allison Wood is the mother of six-year-old daughter Marianne and a four and a half-year-old son, Isaac. Isaac has glutaric acidemia type 1, a rare metabolic disorder diagnosed through newborn screening. Allison is a passionate advocate for newborn screening and has collaborated on research initiatives with Babies First Test and Genetic Alliance. She is also on the board of directors for Rare New England and the New England Regional Genetics Group. Allison's experience with her son's diagnosis also led her to a career transition to genetic counseling. She is currently a second-year genetic counseling student at Bay Path University. So thanks for listening to the podcast and thanks for reaching out. I would ask how you heard of the podcast, but it seems like there's so few podcasts related to genetics that most genetic counselors have found this podcast. Yes, I agree. That's why yours is so awesome. <laughs> you have a son, four years old, uh, or four and a half years old, um, who has the condition luteric acidemia type 1. Uh, and how, how did you go? And now you're actually a second year genetic counseling student. Is that right? So, um, I guess, first of all, just rewind and ask you, what is, what does it mean to have a diagnosis of gluteric acidemia type one or GA1? And is your, has your answer to that changed as you've been a genetic counseling student? Sure. Yeah. So GA1 is what's called an inborn error of metabolism. And inborn just means that it's genetic and metabolism refers to turning food into energy in your body. Um, and usually it does that by these series of chemical reactions that are kind of helped along by these things called enzymes. And in inborn errors of metabolism, one of those enzymes isn't working the way it should be working. And I guess the way that I kind of think about it is like, putting a dam in the middle of a river, there's still lots of water coming from upstream, but when it hits that dam, it just builds up. And so in inborn errors of metabolism, wherever that enzyme isn't working, you get this big buildup of whatever substrate is right before that. And so in GA1, there's a buildup um, of an acid that can cross the blood-brain barrier and cause damage to the brain. And this, your son was diagnosed um, on newborn screening, is that right? 
Yep. So um, we got a call when he was five days old, um, letting us know that his newborn screening had come back abnormal and that he needed to go in and have some repeat testing done. Did you know what newborn screening was or did you realize that he'd even had that test done? So like I, I knew that it existed, but I didn't really know, I guess, what it meant. So when we got the call that it was abnormal, you know, we didn't think in our minds to go and Google what newborn screening is. We Googled GA1, which listed all the symptoms of, of what could happen to kids with GA1, but didn't really say anything about newborn screening or the fact that the reason we do newborn screening is to try and find these conditions before symptoms present to prevent them. So we didn't know that 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 was what was happening. We just thought that our our baby was going to have all these things we were reading online. Yeah, and like what what did what did Google tell you <laughs> you could expect? <laughs> so, I mean, I guess the biggest thing is um it talked about these things called metabolic crises crises. And what those are is is they're a result of this buildup of these toxic substances in the body that cause symptoms that you know, if you didn't know that someone had GA1, you would just think they were sick. So you would see like a poor appetite or nausea or vomiting or diarrhea or sleepiness. But if that doesn't get treated right away in kids with GA1, then it continues on to cause breathing problems, seizures, coma, and death if it's not treated um, right away. And the, the really unfun thing about GA1 is that the symptoms of the metabolic crisis presents the same way as shaken baby syndrome does. So if a, if a doctor didn't know that a baby had GA1, they might think that um, their parents had been abusing the baby. And before newborn screening, that's what happened sometimes. Yeah. And is this, is this one of the conditions that all 50 states include on newborn screening, or is it more limited? So... It is something that all 50 states screen for. It was about in the mid-2000s that a lot of states started screening for um, kind of a lot of inborn errors of metabolism, and GA1 was um, one of the ones that was included. Um, so states added it in different years because each state kind of controls what conditions are on their screen, even though they follow a recommended universal screening panel, the timing that they that they get added to the state panels will differ from state to state. Um, so most states, it was somewhere in the mid 2000s that it got added. And when someone has a positive newborn screening result for GA1, like you did, or at least in your case, what did they tell you when you called? Um, did they say that you need to go in for follow-up testing? Like how quickly did that happen? So um, I think that most people that have gotten that call can kind of remember it like it was yesterday. Um, so he was five days old and we were kind of um, just chilling out with him and enjoying him. And um, I had actually called the doctor earlier that day because he had some gunk in his eyes. So I was expecting a call. So when I saw the number, I wasn't really surprised. Um, but after she told me that the eye stuff wasn't anything we needed to worry about, she said, um, but there's something else I have to tell you. And I could just tell by the sound of her voice that it was really not good. And um, she had to tell me what the name of it was three times. And then finally, I just told her to spell it out so I could write it down because I just, I couldn't process what she was telling me. Um, 
And then um, she told us that he needed to come right back in to have some follow-up testing done. Um, but because his numbers were so far out of range, they scheduled him to see a geneticist um, when he was seven days old because uh, they wanted him started on treatment right away. And do you live do you live in an area where it was easy for him to see a geneticist quickly? It was um, they made it easy for us um, because they really wanted him started on treatment. So the nearest hospital is about an hour and a half from us where we are in Vermont. Um, so it's a bit of a drive, but it wasn't too too far, especially with something like this. We just after getting that initial call, um, we weren't really able to talk with anyone that could give us too many answers to what was going on. And so we spent a couple of days just Googling and, and not knowing really what was going to happen to him. Um, so we, we were ready to go up to the geneticist and, and find out what this all meant. When you went for that appointment, was a genetic counselor also there and involved with the appointment? So I think so. It's, it's so hard to like think back now. Um, I remember getting our pedigree taken because I remember both of us were like, why would they ask if my husband and I are related? <laughs> um, so I remember that part. But I think when we went in that day, we were just so overwhelmed with what was going on with Isaac that, um, you know, we needed the geneticist had just had so much information that they needed to give us that I think genetic counseling wasn't something that to them was a priority at that moment. Mm -hmm. And what, what do you remember that the medical geneticist told you that the diagnosis meant for, for Isaac? So it, when I think back to the appointment, it was just kind of like one thing on top of another, on top of another, um, of just all these really life-changing things that we had never like even knew existed that we would have to change about our lives. So first um, that he would have to be on a special diet for his whole life. So he has to have a low protein diet. They take his blood um, when he was younger, they took it very frequently, but now not as much um, and calculated diet for him for how much protein he's allowed in a day. And then he also has a special formula that he has to drink every day. And he takes something called carnitine, which helps rid the body of like cellular waste. And because he makes so much waste, he uses a lot of carnitine. So he gets some extra from that. So that's kind of like one arm of the treatment. And then the other arm is the emergency care. So anytime babies and little ones with GA1 get sick, um, it can lead to a metabolic crisis. So it's really important to get a special IV into them that's filled with glucose. So um, any like vomiting more than once or a fever that wouldn't come right down with, um, with fever medication, diarrhea, going too long without eating, all of those things, um, we'd have to call the doctor and take him in and see what they wanted to do. And most of the time he would have to be hospitalized, usually for three or four days, and to get through those illnesses. And the, the goal was really to make sure that his body didn't start breaking down its own muscles, which are so full of protein. So it sounds like he had, after this diagnosis, there were a lot of hospitalizations that he had as, a, as an infant. Yeah, so at first, what they told us is that we really needed to kind of cut ourselves off from the world during the, the most critical time. 
And different doctors, I think, have different opinions of what that critical time is for GA1. But we were told for the first two years of his life, he really shouldn't be like around crowds, around people. We didn't go to, you know, Christmases, family Christmases, family Thanksgivings. We would keep him home. Anything during um, the winter where there were illnesses around, we just wouldn't take him out at all. Um, and he still did get sick some and so was hospitalized a couple of times in his first couple of years of life. But after he reached um, two years old, they told us that we could start taking him out and doing things with him. Um, and that's when, you know, he had no immunity. So he would get sick all the time, but it wasn't quite as critical then um, where we had a little bit of time to get him to the hospital. So most of his hospitalizations actually came after he turned two. Um, and like after he started preschool, he was hospitalized three times within six weeks right after he started just because he just needed to build up that immunity. Yeah. How did, how did you handle those two years where you were trying so hard to keep him away from people? And I mean, I imagine you had friends and family that wanted to visit him and breathe all over him. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It, it was a really hard time because we're not, we're not like, people that like to be shut inside. Mm -hmm. So, and it's hard to tell your family, like, we can't come, we can't be there. And, um, you know, I think it's hard for people to also understand, like, they really can't come. Um, so. I'm guessing you would hear, oh, it's good for kids to get sick and get immunities. People thinking that you were just being overly protective and paranoid. <laughs> Yeah, and <laughs> I did hear that sometimes, and and at first it was really hard for me to deal with that, but after a while you start to think that it's, unless you're in the situation and really know, like, deeply what the consequences of it are, it's just so hard to understand. Like, they're not in the doctor's appointments with us hearing the doctor's tell us this stuff. They're hearing it secondhand and it's like, oh, is, is it really that bad? So it's like looking back on it now, I, I get how people could see it the other way yeah. too. And you have, you have a six-year-old daughter also, right? So she was two years old or under two years old when, when Isaac was born. Um, I, how was, how did that go with her? <laughs> So, I mean, at first it was fine. Um, and it really was fine the whole time because she's, I, I feel like both of our kids are just pretty, they just go with the flow and what, what needs to happen will just kind of make happen. And it's, I think it's just, it's been our life. So I, she doesn't know anything different. You know, when those two were younger and they would play, I remember Marianne would have the, um, the little food kitchen out and Isaac would grab a hot dog and Marion would be like, Oh no, that's too many proteins. And she'd take it from him. So, so um, they're normal. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We did have to keep her, you know, we kept her out of preschool for a year. Um, when Isaac was still too young for her to be, to be going. Um, but other than that, and as soon as Isaac, hit two, we kind of decided as a family that we weren't going to let this diagnosis like hold him back from doing anything that he could do or would want to do. So 
pretty much as soon as he turned two, we we got him into gymnastics and swim lessons, and he does horseback riding lessons now and karate. And so we try and get him into as much stuff as he can, as he wants to be in, but in the background, try and just make sure that he's protected and um, has the things that he needs so that he doesn't get sick. We'll be back with patient stories in just a minute. Did you know that when it comes to planning a family, the ideal time to meet with a genetic counselor is actually before you become pregnant? Speaking with a genetic counselor can help you to understand the many different testing options available to you both before and during pregnancy. From carrier screening to diagnostic testing options and everything in between, Gray Genetics is here to help. In a preconceptual genetic counseling appointment, a certified genetic counselor will also evaluate your family history and discuss any known or suspected hereditary conditions. They can also help you to understand the likelihood of passing on those conditions to the next generation. By connecting with a genetic counselor over the phone or through secure video conferencing, discussing genetic testing or other preconceptual options is more convenient than ever. To learn more about preconceptual genetic counseling or how to make an appointment, go to graygenetics.com. That's G-R-E-Y genetics.com. And how, how normal does it, does it feel to you now? Like how often do you, do you have to have medical appointments for him or there's hospitalizations or kind of complications and how much do you feel like you really do have the freedom to do whatever you want to do? We feel pretty free now. Um, the first couple years of life in GA1 are really just the most critical. That's when most of the metabolic crises happen. Um, We still feel just a little, just a little lost because people have only been screening for GA1 since the mid 2000s. So there's, and the penetrance is really, really high. Most of the kids that aren't treated for GA1 will have a crisis. And so there's not tons of older kids that we can kind of look to, to kind of see what the future is going to look like, which is a little bit scary. Um, But I mean, the doctors are really hopeful that as if the kids make it through those first couple of years, that they'll kind of be fine. We still will have to hospitalize him if he gets sick and won't drink when we need him to drink. Um, He doesn't need to go to the doctors that much anymore. Um, we, you know, it's always kind of in the back of our minds as we need to watch out for things, but we really just want him to, to be a kid. Yeah. Um, and what, I mean, I, he's only four and a half, but what has your experience been with insurance coverage for getting his appointments covered, but also, um, the special formula he needs to take that, has that been an issue at all? Insurance has been like the of our existence since the beginning (laughs) and that's just like another thing that you don't like you have no idea when you get a diagnosis like this like what's coming (laughs) in terms of all the insurance stuff which in the beginning it it was like a full-time job to just try and figure this stuff out because everything would get denied and I didn't know that you had to like go through this whole process of appealing it and appeal and appeal and eventually usually they would cover it if you were annoying enough um and then we were also lucky in vermont we were able to get isaac something called um, katie beckett insurance 
which is insurance that's um, for people that are disabled. Um, and it doesn't take into account the financials of the parent. So it's really based off of the child. And um, so it's like a secondary insurance to our insurance. And it, it covers anything that, that our insurance doesn't cover, which has, I think, saved us financially because, you know, he's been hospitalized 12 times since birth. And most of those are at least three or four days. So, um, you know, plus all the doctor's appointments and blood draws, it adds up quick. <laughs> a previous guest, someone with PKU, I don't know if you heard that episode, but he, he mentioned the Medical Nutrition Equity Act, which I'd never heard of before related to, um, you know, lobbying for coverage of like medically necessary formula. Is that something that you're familiar with or been involved in? Yes. All? So I've definitely heard of it and I've um, emailed my Senator Bernie Sanders and kind of emailed back and forth with his team a little bit about it, um, asking him to sponsor it. Uh, yes. And it hits home because my, my regular insurance for the first three years of Isaac's life did cover his formula even though we had to kind of fight a little for it in the beginning, they did cover it. Well, this year they decided that they were no longer going to cover it. And our medical supply company charges the insurance $6,000 a month for his formula, which is so much more than it's than you would need to buy it for if you just bought it out of a store or an online store. Um, and it's, it's just, I don't know. It's just crazy to me that they would not cover something that these kids with these conditions really need to live a healthy life. And the reason that they're screening for it on newborn screening is to get them on treatment. <laughs> but when you make the treatment financially like unavailable for some patients, and we are lucky, but there's many other families who have kids with GA1 who are paying out of pocket for that formula. It's, it's just not right. And does the Cody Beckett insurance that you have in Vermont, does that end up covering it or no? It, it does. So that has covered it this year for us. Um, whereas in the past, my regular insurance would have, um, would have covered it. So it's, yeah, the Katie Beckett insurance, it, if for any kids that have anything, I would suggest looking into it in different states. Um, have kind of different versions of it. Um, so some kids with GA1 weren't able to get it um, and some have been able to get it. So, but it's definitely an option to look into. And I know that, I know just from emailing with you that you've been involved with Babies First Test and Genetic Alliance, and you're on the board of directors for Rare New England, New England Regional Genetics Group. When and how did you get involved with all of those groups? I'm guessing it was after Isaac was two or three years old, at least. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So kind of after we came out of the fog, I guess, because I still like thinking back, I don't have like great memories of that time. Um, but after life kind of calmed down and he got through that really scary time, um, I really felt like I wanted to do something because so many moms before had fought to get GA1 added to the newborn screening panel. And if they hadn't done that, then our lives would be really different. And I wanted to do something, but I didn't really know like what to do. I didn't 
know how to be an advocate. I didn't know where to start. And I saw something on Baby's First Test that they were looking for um, parents to be a part of um, something called the Consumer Task Force. And what that was was um, parents and other advocates would kind of get together and learn about newborn screening. You'd have the opportunity to go to different conferences that were centered around newborn screening. And then the second part was you would put together a project centered around newborn screening. And so I did a research project that looked at the first contact that parents get about an out-of-range newborn screening, which is really to kind of figure out, is everyone kind of getting the same information? Who's contacting parents um, to let them know about an abnormal newborn screening? Is it is it different? How different is it? Um, is there more information that parents want? And just kind of overall how that experience was for them. Yeah. Did, were you surprised at what you found? I, there was a couple of things that surprised me. First is that the last couple of questions that we did on the survey, and we had 283 parents fill out the survey, is just how much people wanted to say. So the last couple of questions was just kind of like, is there any other information you wished that you'd received? And then the last question was, is there anything else that you'd like to share? And a lot of people wrote whole paragraphs just kind of talking about their experience and and things that they um, would have liked to have received that they didn't receive. A lot of people um, really felt like just more information in general was what they needed. They wanted to know, like, what websites can I go to that are good websites that have accurate information rather than Googling and ending up at places that then you have to go to the doctor and the doctor has to tell you, nope, that's not true. That's not true. And then you have to kind of re put your mind around different accuracies, I guess. Um, so that was kind of a big thing that people had pointed out. Um, it's, there was just so much variance in what people were getting told and what information that they were getting. Um, so, yeah. And was that all, was that a national survey or was that just focused on the Northeast? So it was a national survey. And what we did was we reached out to, um, advocacy organizations that represented conditions that were screened for on the newborn screen and then asked them to kind of share the survey with their members. And then Babies First Test and Genetic Alliance also put it out, out through all of their social media platforms. Yeah, it's interesting how social media <laughs> has become like a, yeah, I don't know, like a easy way to reach people, whether it's, you know, through a scam or totally legitimate research study. Yes. <laughs> and it's interesting. So when Isaac was born, I wasn't I wasn't on Facebook or anything, and I didn't know about any support groups for the first two months of his life. And we felt so alone. And even though the doctors had told us, you know, there's there's like a 75% chance that he would he would do totally fine, anything that we read online was was really the opposite. Um and finally, I heard about the Organic Acidemia Association from Isaac's nutritionist, and um, I reached out to the person that ran that organization. And then that day, I finally got to talk to another parent um, who had, like lots of other parents who had kids with GA1 who were totally healthy, just uh, thriving, amazing kids. It just all the kids with GA1 are amazing, but just getting to see other families was just so helpful. <laughs> yeah. And you found, you found that through Facebook or just the organic acidemias, um, 
Association website? So um, she told me about the Organic Acidemia Association, Isaac's Nutritionist, and then I went to their website and emailed the um, the person that ran it. And she told me that there's a big group on Facebook. Um, so I joined Facebook and joined the group. <laughs> and are, are you concerned about, do you get concerned about privacy issues with, with Facebook? It seems like that's an issue that's coming up more recently for patients and all those private groups. Yes, for sure. Um, and I would say that those first couple of months of his life, the the groups were so helpful. Um, but it's kind of one of those things where people are supportive uh, of another. And then kind of, I feel like as the kids get older, um, they're not kind of as involved as much. And so it, it tends to be kind of the the parents with kids that have been newly diagnosed kind of connecting there. And then I feel like a lot of people find a group that they really connect with. And then there's like, there's two other moms that, that are kind of in the same position that I'm in. And we talk, you know, maybe once or twice a month, um, kind of on our own. And so it seems like a good place to kind of initially meet people and then kind of make your own little groups. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, how did you, so right now you're a second year genetic counseling student. At what point did you become interested in pursuing a career in genetic counseling? And that was it. I think you said you worked in the dairy industry for 10 years before that, right? So big shift. Yeah. So I actually, um, I work in dairy genetics right now. I do reproductive and genetic consulting on dairy farms. So I've been in genetics for 11 years now. Um, but <laughs> so it is a big jump to go from dairy genetics to human genetics, but it's got, I feel like the same base, but yeah, that's about where it ends. <laughs> um, so I met a genetic counselor at one of the um, conferences that I went to through Baby's First Test. And she sat next to me. And I would say like after five minutes of talking with her, I was just like, yeah, this is exactly what I want to do with my life. This is, this is like what I'm meant to do. And so after that conference, I started Googling what you needed to do to be a genetic counselor, what the programs were. And what I found out quickly is that, A, there's not a lot of genetic counseling programs. And B, they're, um, where we are, my husband has a business and my family lives all around us. So moving wasn't really an option for me. Um, but I really wanted to be a genetic counselor. Um, and so that year, um, APATH had had just launched a program that was mostly online and then some in person. And then a big, a big part of genetic counseling school is going out and working with other genetic counselors. Um, and they had some really great relationships already with a lot of hospitals. So it was a really appealing program to me. So I reached out to the program director and asked her what I needed to do. And there was just a couple of prerequisites I needed to take and, and I applied and here I am. Yeah. And I think that's one of only two programs that's really online at this point. I could be wrong. There could be others. Yeah. I think another one just started this year um, somewhere in the Midwest, I think. There's Boise State. Um, yes. Boise State. Yeah. Um, and with Baypath, there is a partial there, there's a couple of times that you all meet in person, right? Where I think Boise State's completely online. But how, how have you found that, like interacting with your classmates? And like, I mean, I have a telehealth company, but it's still 
it's like new. It's new to me. <laughs> it's like new to yeah. everyone. So. Yeah. So it's interesting. I feel like a lot of the people that my classmates and I have met have kind of been like, well, how do you have a relationship with your classmates? But I feel like all of us think that we're closer the, in doing what we're doing than we would be if we all went to school together. We talk a lot. We do a lot of um, Zoom meetings. We do Zoom meetings outside of school too, just to kind of talk about what's going on in clinical and experiences that we've been having, talking about tough cases. Um, so we we feel very close. It's and I I mean for eleven years I've kind of worked independently, so doing doing a program online was just really appealing from that sense for me because I, I'm allowed to be flexible with school. I'm allowed to work a little still, which is nice. Um, so I can keep my health insurance. Um, so it's for us, it's the only way that I would have been able to go to genetic counseling school. Yeah. Yeah. What's, uh, so I'm curious, so I keep saying you're a second year student, but it's the summer. So are you doing a summer internship now and your next, your next year starts in the fall? So our, our calendar is like a little, I, we're like halfway through the program right now, just about. Um, so we're just starting our full clinical rounds now. So I just started um, yesterday with my summer clinical um, and that goes until mid-October. Okay, okay. What's, uh, so I'm curious, I don't know if you'll have a ready answer for this. Is there anything that you, you know, even having learned a lot about genetics just through your son's diagnosis, is there anything that you really thought about genetics was absolutely true and you went to school or human medical genetics was true and like you were very surprised to find out was not true once you, once you started school? Um, I guess I would say the, the biggest thing for me is just like, it's not so much that as much as it is just totally retraining my brain away from, you know, dairy genetics to human genetics and just like really simple things. Like I'm so used to referring to cows calving and it's so hard for me to change that to someone having a baby. <laughs> and there hasn't been any like big, big things in terms of genetics. It's just been like rewiring my brain that's been a little bit difficult and um I just find it like fascinating comparing genetic testing in in cows to genetic testing in human and how the whole dairy industry has kind of um I feel like really uh approached it as a unit whereas in humans it seems to be kind of scattered all over the place um so oh, yeah that's interesting like everybody approaches from different angles and names different things and things contradict one another um. exactly exactly whereas in the dairy industry you know all the all the genetics companies got together and paid to have the research done um and you know we've got we've got records on cows milking back to the 50s and we had you know bull semen from bulls back to the 50s so we were able to kind of really in an organized fashion look through and find the traits and figure out um, reliabilities and heritabilities. And, and I feel like going over to humans, it, it just feels so like crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I guess you can't really, or normally not considered appropriate to lock humans up and tell them to do, you know, you don't have the same controlled study opportunities that you do. No, <laughs> um, definitely not. <laughs> um, do you, 
are you really interested in this point uh, in working in metabolic genetics or in newborn screening or are there other areas that you're interested in or you just don't know yet? Everything that I've done so far, I've loved. I've gotten to observe um, prenatally and in pediatrics and in cancer. And I, I can't say I like any more than any other one. I just like them all. <laughs> so um, I know where I am um, because, because my husband has a business, moving isn't really an option for us. So I, I feel like when I graduate, that's going to be something that um, kind of plays into my decision and what I'm going to do. Yeah. Yeah. More telehealth genetic counseling opportunities, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Or there's, I mean, I'm, there's like three bigger hospitals around me, but yeah. It, but again, it would kind of depend on if they have openings. And so I'd have to be really open to whatever is open. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. How aware do you feel like people are of newborn screening and what do you wish that people or doctors knew about newborn screening? Or is there anything from your own experience or the research survey work that you've done that, that you can see could make a big difference if it were implemented? That's a really loaded question. So yes, for me, what I kind of saw from that research is that parents are really feeling like that first contact that they get is really important in kind of driving the start and empowering them to, to take their child's care forward and not getting a lot of information and um, not really knowing how to move forward is really scary when you get a call with a, with a name you can't pronounce and all you're left to is Googling. Um, so I do see an opportunity to somehow incorporate genetic counselors more into the newborn screening world. And I know that they, they are starting to get incorporated some. Um, but I guess the way I think about it is um, when people are pregnant and have a very low chance of having a baby with Down syndrome, maybe like a one in 280 or one in 500, they're offered genetic counseling. And when people are getting this call about their newborn baby, um, they can sometimes go days and days with getting a your baby might have this condition to when they actually meet with a geneticist or a metabolic doctor. And that's a long time for a brand new parents to, to be left without answers. So I think that there is something that can be done there. Yeah, that's a really interesting comparison. I'm under the impression, although this is mostly just from seeing job posts that go around, that a lot of the time genetic counselors are involved with calling out results for state newborn screening programs. Yeah, so generally the the genetic counselors that are working in newborn screening, um, well, there's different roles that they fill, but um, a lot of times, and it again, every state is different and has different um different ways that they kind of call out results. But many times um, the newborn screening department calls the local pediatrician or um, primary care physician. And those are the people that reach out to the parents. Um, and so that's generally the primary point of contact. And um, from the study that we did, what we found is that um, many times it's, it's not quite the the primary care physician, but maybe a nurse that works at the doctor's office, um, or maybe even a scheduler that's working at the doctor's office that's calling parents um, rather than the, the physician. Um, so 
um, not generally a person that has a lot of uh, genetic background and someone that has a lot of time to spend with with a family to explain what this all means. If you'd like to share your story, send an email to podcast at greatgenetics.com. Patient Stories is an ad-free podcast and is unaffiliated with any commercial genetic testing laboratories. We would like to keep it that way. You can now donate to Patient Stories online by going to greatgenetics.com slash podcast slash donate. If you don't want to make a monetary donation but still want to support the show in another way, leaving a review on iTunes or sharing our episodes through social media also makes a big difference. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute medical advice and is also not a substitute for genetic counseling. Neither Gray Genetics nor any of its guests makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast. Evaluation of an individual's personal and family health history is a crucial part of genetic counseling and any recommendation.